You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is the freelance political writer, Tomiwa Oulade, and uh, he is coming to us uh, from, we're, well, we're both here in East London. Uh, welcome, Tom. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. I'd like to begin um, by talking to you about an article that you wrote for Persuasion, Please Stop Imposing American Views About Race on Us. And in that, in that essay, you write, Britain is not America, and importing American race discourse into the United Kingdom not only prevents us from recognizing the specific ways in which racial injustice manifests in this country, it cloaks the reality of black British lives behind an abstraction that flattens our humanity. And you, you wrote this article um, back during or not long after the George Floyd protests and um, the similar protests that took place, the solidarity protests that took place in the UK. Let's, let's start there. What, might, um, what do American commentators get wrong about the British, the situation of, of black British people? Well, I think I should start by saying that um, this is not only specific to American commentators, but it's also um, evident in British commentators as well. Um, so I think we should start by looking at the main differences between um, the black population in the US and the black population in the UK. Um, so the very first um, immediate difference between the two different black populations is that most black people in the UK are either immigrants or the children of immigrants, um, whereas in the case of the United States, most black people are descended from the slaves that arrived, um, that were transported, sorry, from, from Africa to America um, between the 17th century and the 19th century. Um, so that's, the, that's a very basic difference. Um, another um, essential difference between um, black people in the UK and black people in the US is that I would argue that there is a greater diversity of black people in the UK than in the US. And this diversity is evident not only in terms of um, cultural differences, but also in terms of economic differences as well, socioeconomic differences, differences in class. Um, and I think that if you want to analyze um, racism or if you want to analyze the um, the experiences of black people, it's it's uh, it's an absolutely fundamental requirement of you to acknowledge the particular context in which they exist. Mm. Yeah. So I outlined for outlined for listeners the different constituencies of of black British people and the kind of the differences in their um, in their. I guess, income, education levels, outcomes as groups? Sure. So um, up until um, relatively recently, most black people 
in the UK um, came from a West Indian background, um, primarily um, Jamaica, um, Trinidad, um, Guyana, um, and other countries and other countries in the Caribbean. Um, and they arrived um, largely during um, um, after the Second World War, so during um, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, however, recently, there's been a great um, influx of immigrants from Africa, um, primarily from Ghana um, and Nigeria. Um, and these, um, and currently, most Black people in the UK um, are what we call Black Africans. So um, their family come from, um, from Africa. Um, and in terms of the differences, um, for instance, most um, Black Caribbean um, students um, in school are twice as likely to be excluded um, as Black African students. Um, and if you just focus on Black Africans as well, um, th there's a massive difference between um, West African students, so from Nigeria or Ghana, uh, and students, um, for instance, from Somalia or Congo. Um, so, for instance, um, two-thirds of Somali and Congolese students are on free school meals, um, which is um, a reliable indicator of deprivation, whereas the figure for, um, for Nigerians, uh, for British Nigerians and British Ghanaian students um, is about um, 20%. Um, so there's a difference um, in terms of class between um, the various, e even within the various Black African groups. Uh, and there's also um, a difference as well in between um, the Black Caribbean groups uh, and the Black African groups. Um, and even this, this is something, there's, there's something else which is not usually mentioned that um, much right now, but um, in, in the past, there was a degree of conflict between um, Black Africans and Black Caribbeans, even, um, say, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, so you, you had many um, Black Caribbean people um, who were largely um, working class laborers that came to Britain. Um, and back then, um, the only black people from Africa were usually students. Um, and the black Caribbean people at times felt that the black African um, students were um, a bit pretentious and looked down upon them and, and thought they were quite condescending. Um, whereas many black African people back then felt black Caribbean people uh, were essentially criminals that, that they, they had a very negative a negative view view of black Caribbean people and I think that this this sort of this sort of attitude I think is still evident in um, all the generations of, of black Africans it's, it's something that we, we don't like to talk about that much because uh, because it's very politically and ideologically inconvenient but I think that um, I think it's always important to acknowledge the tensions within a community um, to have a better grasp of that community. Um, and ev even the word community as well is, um, is perhaps not the best term. Um, I think when we think of black people in the UK, we should think of communities, so in plural rather than in the singular. Um, because again, 
in order to fully respect um, and to show dignity to a group of people, you need to acknowledge um, nuance and complexity rather than just flattening down their experiences into an abstraction. Mm, absolutely. I think um, I just like to recommend here a couple of books that I've recently read. Um, if people want to go more deeply into this, in particular, David Olusoga's book, um, Black and British. Mm-hmm. Um, did you enjoy that book? Yeah, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, I thought that was just um, an extra. I wasn't expecting it from his Twitter persona, which, like many people's Twitter personas, is rather um, crass. Mm. Uh, is a little bit crass and kind of, I guess, unnuanced mm. is probably the correct thing to say. Yeah. But the book was extraordinarily meticulous mm. and detailed and um, uh, um, just a, a, a very, very clear and careful account. Mm. And one of the things I came away from that book was with was um, precisely as you say, that the black people in the US are largely, of course, there are more recent immigrants from Africa there too. Of course, and we can um, talk about that later as well. Yeah, sure. Um, but there is a sense in which they have a shared, there's a shared history there, which, whereas in the case of Black Britons, there are a variety of different waves of immigration and also of different um, different origins for the people and, and completely different histories from those who came over with the Romans, those who um, were escaped or emancipated slaves who managed to make their way to the UK in the 18th and 19th centuries, or who became black servants in the UK and later got their kind of liberty, or their liberty from the servitude and indenture. Uh, and um, and then the people who uh, were, welcomed, were welcomed in from the West Indies, the Windrush generation, and then, and now uh, re- more recent Ghanaian, Nigerian, Somali immigrants. It's a it's much it's a much more patchwork story. Hmm. I, I also um I, how did you feel about Akala? Have you read Akala's um I've I've not, I've not, re- I've not read Akala's book yet. Um ah. yeah. Well I've I have i have read um I think probably the most popular um book by a black British person which has been recommended a lot recently is um Rennie Edo Lodge's um, book, um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People. Have you read that? I haven't read that, no. Um, I loved Akala's book, um, Natives, Race and Class in mm. the Ruins of Empire, it's called. Mm. Um, even though it is very quote-unquote woke in ways that I, I, there are a lot of things he says that I very much disagree with. Mm. And we'll probably actually get to some of those things in a moment. Um, but his account of growing up as a mixed race as as a mixed race half half black mixed race half caribbean origin half white origin um man in britain in the 80s was was very very um very detailed very vivid and also provides a lot of this kind of nuance Mm. Uh, so I would highly recommend it. I'm, I wasn't too keen on some of his views, but I found the memoir amazing. Mm. Um, but yeah, tell <laughs> tell me what do you think of Rennie Lodge's book? Um, 
to 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 um, put it as simply as as um, as I can, um, I'm not a fan of the book um, f- for many reasons. I think what one 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 element of the book which um, which I found disappointing but unsurprising is when she um, writes about white privilege, um, which is one of the most um, contentious um, terms that's been. Um, used a lot um, in recent discourse about race. And the reason why I found the, um, found the way she defines white privilege very disappointing is that I found it very slippery. So on one hand, she, um, she, she has this picture um, of race as something which is um, parallel to class. So, so race itself can explain um, things in a way that's similar to class. Um, so white people, simply by virtue of being white, um, nothing else, just by virtue of being white, um, have privilege over non-white people. And I, I, I just find this an, an extremely reductive um, way of analyzing social phenomena. Um, if you look, for instance, at schools, um, the um the group of people that um do least well um in terms of educational attainment in this country at the moment is as i'm sure you know um white working class boys uh, mm. and if you actually also break it down by ethnic minority group the ethnic minority group in this country that do um that um have the worst educational attainment are the irish travelers um, which is a very small, a, a small ethnic minority group, but they they have the worst educational t- attainment in the country, um, and the ethnic minority groups that have the best educational attainment um, in this country, as I'm sure you know as well, is um, they are the Indians and the Chinese, mm-hmm. British Indians mm-hmm. and British Chinese people, um, but there, there there is no room in Rennie Edologi's analysis for the, for these. Um, these kinds this these kind of important facts which are absolutely essential when it comes to analyzing analyzing the composition of ethnic minority people in this country and it's also why incidentally i think it's also why increasingly many m- many quote unquote woke people as well um dislike the term bame so bame starts, stands for black and minority ethnic people uh, m- many quote unquote woke people um, say they dislike the term bane because it reduces it, 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 it implies that the experiences of Indian, Chinese, um, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and black people they're all the same or equivalent, um, whereas there are important differences between all these um, ethnic minority groups. But if if that's the case, if if it's the case that um, the term BAME is extremely flattening um, in terms of explaining um, social phenomena. That should also apply um, to a term like white privilege, which is also flattening in that sense as well, because it doesn't account for the differences between ethnic minority groups and also the differences between white ethnic groups, ethnic minority groups as well. And it also implies um, implies that um, because P, it also implies that being white, um, um, that being white makes you um, 
means that you can't be a victim of racism, which I'm sure we'll talk about later as it relates to uh, my anti-Semitism article. But it's 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 terrible for all, all of these reasons. But I th- I think it's it's most immediately terrible because of the way in which it flattens out um, these important differences. Mm. Yeah. And I think this this kind of Americanization of um, of the analysis also is also very flattening, as you point out, because you know you're you're using you're using terminology and not you personally, people who are doing this are using terminology and ideas that are designed to explain the American situation. And I actually don't think they explain the US situation yeah. um, terribly well, but they're they're designed for that framework. Yeah. And then they are just imposed f- um, imposed kind of full scale on us. Yeah. And um, they don't make the same kind of sense here. Yeah. And there there are, as you say, some some differences that are being alighted here in which are important to understand if we're going to try to if we're going to know how to how to actually help people and improve um and attempt to improve the lot of of or uh, the socioeconomic lot of certain groups yeah. so for example british indians are one of the most successful highest earning best educated um most professional groups mm-hmm. um hindus and sikhs from india largely mm-hmm. Um, whereas immigrant Muslim groups from the subcontinent, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, are doing pretty badly on most metrics. Mm. So, and that clearly is, there's no difference in race between an Indian and a Pakistani. Mm. Um, you know, there's also, there's no difference in appearance, um, unless we're talking about religious markers of identity or something like that. Mm. But there's, um, you know there there are a lot of other things at work there. Mm. I th- you say in the article one of the parts that I really liked um, was about representation and, and um, this was a a sort of obvious point once you made it, but I, I had never thought of it in this way before. Mm. Um, there has been a lot of concern about the underrepresentation of black Britons in professions like the arts and publishing. But why would you choose to go into theatre or journalism rather than law, medicine or finance if you are a talented child of ambitious but not well-off immigrants? In a country in which black people make up only 3% of the population, for example, 6% of junior doctors are black. Would the country or the black community really benefit if more black Britons chose to ditch medicine for the theatre. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah well, well, there is that, that stereotype, isn't there? And I'm sure it's the same with, um, with Indians and Chinese about the, um, the importance of either going into medicine or law or engineering. Um, and there's, there's a tension between that stereotype, which is largely true, um, and the sort of diktat, the sort of proclamation for many people in publishing um, and in the arts that say that say, oh, we we must more black people should um, join our organisations, um, organisations that actually don't really offer um, secure and good pay, um, which doesn't mm-hmm. really op- um, offer job security, 
organizations um, and industries which are um, often largely staffed by people with um, large amounts of inherited family wealth, which which is not the case with um, immigrants, immigrant communities. So it's it's, it's that. Why, why would you why why would you want to um, basically un- unless of course um, the um, particular person is genuinely passionate about um, being a journalist or um, going into the theater. If, if, if that's the case, um, they, 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 by all means, they should go there. But th- there is always that tension if you are the um, child of, as I say, um, not particularly well off, but extremely ambitious um, immigrant families to, um, to go for the more affluent um, and more prestigious professions. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I personally feel that if you if your aim is to make, for example, um, theatre mm. um, more diverse, then you need to start by funding it better yeah. so that it's um, going into theatre is a feasible option for more people. Mm. And, um, and, and for people who don't come from wealthy middle class families. Mm. And once you do that, then then I think all you can do is sit back and see who decides to go into it. Because mm. also, it's it's very unlikely that precisely the same number of people or same proportion of people from every group will be drawn to a particular thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the moment, the opportunity isn't even there. Yeah, Most people who go into theatre or even into journalism, um, increasingly, these are people who come from middle class or wealthy, reasonably affluent, secure backgrounds mm. because it provides such an uncertain living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and of course, um, I, I would say that um, the, the bigger problem when it comes to um, representation in arts and in journalism is, is one of class, um, which, which, which links again to what I was saying about the... Um, so if, if you were, for instance, um, let's say if you were the, um, the, the, the child of um, a white working class um, family um, and, and you're particularly, and you do well at school and, and you, you're, very, you're very intelligent um, um, and talented and, and, um, and, and ambitious as well, why, why would you go into those, those professions that actually don't pay that well when you can support your family much more effectively by becoming a barrister or a doctor. Mm. Every single one of the doctors at the local surgery that I go to here um, is Indian, mm. judging from their names on the roster. Not surprising. <laughs> it's, it's not surprising because actually um, 30% of, um, of, of NHS doctors in this country um, come from an Indian background, 30%. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and they represent about um, one or two percent of the population. Yeah, absolutely. So, talking a little bit about more prosperous immigrants, um, as we are at the moment, kind of bucking, I guess, this trend to see everything, uh, um, all all hardship in society as a result of structural racism, yeah. which I find is for many people, not for everybody, and some people have a more sophisticated way of um of viewing things mm. 
Um, but for some people, like for Rennie Edo Lodge, also for people like Ash Sarkar, it's used as a kind of tot- totalizing hmm. explanation. And you point out in your article, which just, uh, which I found actually quite kind of um, thrilling to read, because it clarified something that I had always sort of suspected, but had never had never really clearly articulated to myself. Hmm. I don't know where that sentence is going. Let's abandon that sentence and start <laughs> another one. Sure. <laughs> Your article is called The Dangerous Logic of Anti-Racism. Hmm. And you say, I think this is the, the real crux of it. Um, Structural equalities might be a consequence of race, but this doesn't necessarily mean that they are. If these outcomes were necessarily because of race, this wouldn't just mean that minorities with worse outcomes were racially were racially disadvantaged. It would also imply that some minorities, like Jewish people, are racially privileged. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so let's start with the um the way in which they define racism. So uh most people I think would say racism is simply racial prejudice. Um, but the um, structural, um, the structural racism definition says racism is not just simply racial prejudice, but it's racial prejudice plus power. Um, so they would say, for instance, um, black people um, can't be racist against white people because white people have more structural power over black people. Um, white people um, have advantages in terms of employment in terms of education and also in terms of in terms of um, the likelihood of being um, caught in a criminal justice system um, so on all these three things white people have structural power over black people therefore black people as structurally oppressed can't be racist against white people there are many problems with this um, definition um, but I think the most sinister um, problem is the one that makes it um, susceptible to anti-Semitism. So if, if, we, if we just say, um, if, we, if we say that um, Jews, for instance, they, they, they tend to be more educated um, and also um, more educated and do well in terms of profession, and they are also less likely to be um, involved in the criminal justice system, by that definition, by 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 that um, by that definition of racism, people from a more structurally oppressed um, minority, so like black people, for instance, um, can't be anti-Semitic to Jews because Jews themselves are are, are not um, structurally oppressed. By 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 the definition of of the of the um, by by the definition that many of these people espouse. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of parallels also with um, Parsis mm-hmm. um, in India, mm-hmm. um, because of course I'm also a member of a highly, highly successful tiny minority group. Mm. Yeah, I think that it's for me. There are a couple of things going on, and one is that this is uh, this is the language of kind of racial resentment, and I mm. don't find that helpful. Mm. Because I think what you need to improve things is a broad alliance of people with shared goals. Mm. Um, and 
I also think that it's it kind of suggests on a, on a more sort of basic psychological level this idea that you can't be prejudiced or racist if you're disempowered mm. um, or discriminated against yeah. um, makes it seem as though victimhood is somehow ennobling. Yeah. And, 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 and sorry to interrupt you. And, and that, yeah, that's why no, I, please do. That, that's why it makes it. Um, that's why um, um, it makes it particularly susceptible um, to anti-Semitism because, um, as as um, August Babel, the um, German social democrat, once said, um, anti-Semitism is the socialism of the fools. So anti-Semites um, invariably see themselves as the victims, um, and they see the Jew as this um, this extremely powerful um figure that's that's always behind the scenes um and that's always trying to um disadvantage by whatever means they can the gentile population um so in 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 that sense in in that sense of racial resentment um and in trying to view racism exclusively through the lens of power and through the lens of hidden structures that's 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 very dangerous territory um b- because it's that there's there's a consonance between that and the anti-semitic worldview mm. yeah absolutely i'm thinking of that infamous um mural Mm. Um, that my favorite person mm. <laughs> in British politics <laughs> um, once endorsed Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. who I know is also not a favorite of yours. Yeah, which has the um, the group of of men who are playing Monopoly sitting on the backs of naked, bent over, yeah, um, brown servants. People. Yeah, mm, yeah, brown people. And and I in the original in the original mural. Um, there's there's quite a lot of kind of iconographic um, similarities between that original mural and anti-Semitic portrayals of of Jewish people. Yes, less so in the version that became popular online recently, and which was shared by the Disney actress Gina Carano. Mm. I think there's that that was a sort of smoothed out version, which um, I could. I'm more likely to accept the idea that that um, people sharing that no longer sort of realize it was anti-Semitic. Mm. But in the case of the original mural that Corbyn shared, it was really seems part of a of of a very clear lineage of anti-Semitic, mm. the secret cabal of Jews running the world kind of kind of imagery. Exactly. Yeah, and it's also and it was also um, that sort of depiction of Jews as this um, secret cabal um, disadvantaging more uh, more victimized and oppressed groups was also um, um, a trope that was um, promoted by the um, British grime uh, musician Wiley um, during his rant, um, I think it was last summer. Did, did you, did you um, read his rant on Twitter? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, f- for one day or for about two days, either a day or two days, I can't remember, um, the British grime artist, um, Wiley, went on this rant, which basically um, accused Jewish music managers um, of exploiting um, young black musicians um, in London. And he 
he traced this um, to to an old canard um, that was promoted by the Nation of Islam, which basically um, argues that Jews played a disproportionate role in the transatlantic slave trade um, in, in, in financing. Which is factually uh, untrue also. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, it's, it's completely untrue. And, and, and Wiley um, basically um, promoted and, and shared this, um, the, the, this untrue claim um, consistently throughout the entire day. Um, and, and his justification for, for promoting that view is he's just um, somebody that's fighting against structural inequality. He's just somebody fighting against the um, structural oppression of black people. Um, by a minority of people that have some sort of privilege, that have some sort of privilege, and, and the only way in which that they have this privilege is by disadvantaging another um, an, a, a, another group of people. So, so that links again to what what um, what I said in my article about viewing um, the relative position, the relative positions of different ethnic minority exclusively. And, and, and exclusively is the key word here, yeah. exclusively um, through the prism uh, th- through the prism of, of race and power um, it makes makes it particularly vulnerable to the sorts of um, anti-Semitic bow that was shared by Wiley during his Twitter rant. Yeah, I I I I completely agree. I think the problem is not seeing racism or structural racism as a factor hmm. um, in, uh, in people's poor economic or social s- standing and situation. Hmm. I think that's not the problem. The problem is this conspiratorial thinking, this kind of totalizing worldview. Hmm. And I do. it does concern me a bit that I... Um, hear a lot of talk implying that at least on twitter i don't know how much this or and in and in things like Rennie edo lodge's book um as far as i as far as i'm aware also in d'angelo's book and things like that there's a lot of kind of people suggesting that if you are oppressed therefore you have a kind of clarity of vision mm of how society is. Mm. And I think you can be genuinely oppressed, mm. structurally oppressed, yes. a victim of racism, etc. Mm. But that does not necessarily lead to any kind of clear sightedness, except about your own experiences, perhaps. Yeah. You're at the explanatory level, it doesn't make you more likely to have a good overview you know, victimhood is also very debate, can be very debasing, mm. can be morally and intellectually debasing, mm. and can lead to resentments that can make you vulnerable to, um, to radicalization, mm. to anti-Semitism, to conspiracy thinking. Um, and we see this in white people too all the time. Mm. Um, you know, if you feel that you've been really hard done by by the system, the man, you don't have a job or you don't have a girlfriend or whatever, you can get really easily, or, or many people can get really easily dragged into QAnon conspiratorial mm. thinking and um, 
some of the mo- most toxic incel communities, mm. um, 4chan and, mm. and all, all of that kind of thing. And that, that is also a path that downward victimhood can lead you. It's really hard actually to maintain your dignity and intellectual perspicacity mm. if you are victimized or mm. feel you're victimized. Yeah. I, and, um, I think the emotional element of it is why I am particularly resistant to this type of, of, of rhetoric and, and this type of, of way of seeing the world. Um, I, uh, I have many intellectual reasons to oppose it, but at a very basic, um, fundamental gut level, it's, it's an emotional reaction. It's a reaction to what I feel is an extremely condescending attitude, um, directed against me. The notion that my um, my racial background should completely define um, how I see the world, um, how I experience the world, I, I just find an extremely condescending, uh, uh, an extremely uh, and an extremely essentialist um, uh, attitude to against me, um, which which I am always resistant, which I always try to resist, um, and, and I feel that that pressure as well. As, as you as you um imply that that pressure of of trying to of, of that that responsibility of being of of being somebody um that's that's considered insightful on, on matters of on, on matters of race as somebody who knows the world ju- just because of your of your racial background irrespective of your own particular experiences um and your own particular upbringing um and your mm. own particular mm cultural and intellectual interests, all of that is completely flattened and completely reduced to a rubble. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the fundamental um, emotional um, explanation for my, um, my, my objections to this particular uh, way of seeing the world. We used to talk about uh, a concept called the burden of representation. Mm which seems to have gone out of fashion. And I, mm. that idea was that, for example, if you're teaching a class on um, slavery, the slave trade, mm. let's say in the US, and uh, you have a black student in your class, you shouldn't assume that that black student knows more about this topic or is more interested in it or has special insights mm. or can be in any way held up as some kind of exemplar of what you're of the forces, structural forces that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's funny as well, because say, for instance, um, I, I'm a black child um, in Britain um, from a Nigerian um, background, um, and we're learning about the American slave trade um, and about, um, and about um, black slaves in America. Why should my own particular experience when um, none, of, none of my family members, as far as I know, um, were taken in as, as slaves. Why, why should my particular experience um, be completely um, excised and, and the experience of somebody whose family um, descendants were um, enslaved? Why, why, should, why should their experience be imposed onto my own experience? Um, that, that's, 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 that's ironically one of the problems with the notion of lived experience is that it's not genuinely lived experience. It's, it's lived experience in terms of this weird totalizing abstraction 
that it's it's um, it's just a slave trade. It's oppression. It's um, it's tyranny by by the man, as as you put it. Um, it's 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 nothing else. There's there's no room for any nuance. There's no room for any sort of dignity. Um, no room for any any curiosity about different um, facets of your of your background and your experiences, which were not um, which were not related to oppression or victimization. One of the interesting things in um, David Olusoga's book, um, which I'm going to just once more recommend to everybody, I think it was really the best, in my opinion, it was the best book I read in 2020. Mm. Um, his book, Black and British, um, absolutely stunning, um, stunning book. Um, one of the surprising things in that book is that there are a number of white people in Britain who are the descendants of um, slaves. Yes, in, and, in, including, sorry to interrupt you, including yeah. the, um, the, the servant of Samuel Johnson. Yes, Francis Barber. Yeah. Yes. I think that there has been, I have noticed some overcorrection in, anti, in the kind of anti-woke circles in which I run among people who seem to want to somehow give the UK as a whole or somehow themselves or white people or something um, enormous amounts of credit for ending the slave trade, mm -hmm. which also seems extremely perverse to me. Um, mm. You know, Britain was one of the largest traders mm. and British colonies were, were some of the worst. Well, the British West Indies was the single worst yeah, place to be a slave. Yeah, it um, was. It was, definitely. And so that there can be some kind of jingoistic British credit, mm. quote unquote, for ending the slave trade just makes zero sense to me. I mean, mm. I think that we should, of course, I think it's fine to um, lionize and celebrate the actual abolitionists, so individual people who were yes. involved in that movement. That's that's great. And I think it's also fine not to feel responsible for the slave trade because your ancestors were involved. You mm. are not your ancestors. Mm. And But I think that there is this kind of... I think people have a huge seem still seem to have a huge trouble sorting that out. They don't want to be blamed, and therefore they are falsifying history. Hmm. I don't know if you've noticed that too. Falsifying history in in do you mean in the sense of saying, oh, the, the the slave trade in Britain wasn't as as bad as in America, like the slave trade is one. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that is true. That that is true. In in terms of in, in terms of the colonies themselves, I, I think yeah, that's that's definitely true. But on the other side, I think it's also true to say that in in, in Britain there has not be, been the sort of uh, obsessive racial taxonomies mm -hmm. that that was mm -hmm. evident in America. That that's been evident in America since, since they had their slaves. So th there's not been the sort of obsessive racializations I, I i would say i would argue um that that's that's evident in america and i think that that's also the case in 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 in, in other european countries as well such as france which, which of course is has its own particular history of racism but but in france um i, I know um that many many people in france are very resistant to the the sort of now global 
ergonomic view of of race that's that's president that that's present amongst um most of the western world now where somebody's racial background is seen to determine and define their entire experience of the world yeah i mean we didn't have jim crow here and we didn't have slavery on british soil Mm. which doesn't which doesn't kind of somehow exculpate of course um you know britain's historically from all wrongdoing or anything like that but this kind of idea that there is no way through this except to sort of continue with fixed racial identities and just redefine them seems Mm. really wrong to me Mm. um and feels very much feels to me like a step backwards Mm. yeah definitely um, the other thing I think that affects, that maybe makes a difference is that, correct me if I'm wrong, because maybe my stats are off here, but I think that we have in Britain a lot more quote unquote mixed race. Um, I agree with Thomas Chatterton Williams that that's a misleading term because it suggests that there are some people out there who are racially pure, quote unquote, unmixed. Yeah. Um, but we have more quote unquote mixed race. Um, mm relationships, um, children, families, um, also many, many um, uh, blended families, adoptive families. There are an awful lot of people in f- who are growing up in families where some people's skin is white and some people's skin is not, is brown or yeah. dark brown or whatever. Um, have you read, um, sorry to interrupt you, have you read mm. um, Remy Adekoya's new book, Biracial Britain? No, I, I, that's actually on my reading list, and I saw that you wrote a review of it. Yes, yes, I did. I, I, I really recommend it. I think it's a, it's an excellent book. Um, basically, the, the book is sort of, it's, it's, it's a strange book in, in that, um, it's, in, it's mostly composed of, um, a mixed race, um, quote unquote, in, individual. Explaining their experience of growing up in Britain, and I think another really important aspect of that book is that when we think of mixed race, um, we tend to think of black and white. Um, but um, in, in Remy Adekoya's book, um, he also um, talks to mixed race people from Indian and and white British backgrounds, or Chinese and, and white British backgrounds. So it's it's. Um, it's a more um, inclusive um, definition of mixed race people. Um, that's that's evident in that book, um, because actually um, the um, the black and white uh, mixed race um, population, I think, is only about fifty percent of of the entire uh, mixed race population in the UK. So 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 there's there's, a, there's also a very large um, group of mixed race people um, in the UK that. That are outside the um, the black and white um, definition. I know I'm I'm one of them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I'm I'm of course Indian and Indian and white. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so. I read your review. I haven't read the book, but I did read your review that you wrote for the Evening Standard, and you report that in the book he. Um, I'll I'll quote you, Um, many of the people interviewed state that, so the book is a series of interviews with um, mixed race British people told largely in their own words with commentary from 
um, Adekoya. And as you report, many of the people interviewed state that, although they grew up feeling alienated in Britain, when they visited one of their parents' native countries, they were treated as incorrigibly foreign. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you said you wrote you wrote of your own. I think did you write? Is this of your own experience? Um, not 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 of my own experience. No, sorry. This uh, is quoting someone from yeah. Adekoya. That uh, yes, because you are not mixed race. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. I just got confused for a moment, but. Uh, he he quotes um, mixed white Nigerian person mm. Mm. because you are your both your parents are Yoruba Nigerian. Yeah. yeah, saying that in in Britain she was always regarded as black, mm. um, but when she went to Nigeria, she was surprised to to find that people um, said she was white. Yeah, and actually, what I did not include in that um, review partly for reasons of space, is that... Um, so I, I grew up um, in Nigeria, and I moved to the UK when I was nine. Um, and when I was um, living in Nigeria, um, I had a neighbour. Uh, one of my neighbours um, was um, a young boy, um, just slightly older than me, and his dad um, is, is Nigerian, but his mom is Russian. So he was a mixed-race boy. And in my in my conception, in my mind, I basically consider that boy white, essentially. Um, I, I I did not really have a conception of mixed race um, back then because I, I was quite young. So I just had a conception of you're either black or, or you're white, essentially. Um, so, and and this this and and this 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 may sound strange because. Um, as, as I said in that review, when, when men pe- mo- most people in Western countries um, think of black, white, mixed race people as as essentially black, they just they just call them black people. Whereas in, in many other countries with um, with quote unquote people of color, um, they they consider mixed race people, especially mixed race people that grew up in in, in white countries, um, as essentially white. Mm. I think the alienation is all of returning to the kind of parental homeland when mm. you've grown up in the West is is not unique to mixed race people. To be fair, mm. I think a mm. lot of people, uh, you know, a friend of mine who is um, fully Chinese, um, racially quote unquote, um, both both her parents are are Chinese, but she grew up completely um, in Canada, and. When she went to China, she found it totally alien, and they definitely mm. considered her a foreigner. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and even because um, um, I, I was also um, recently reading um, Barack Obama's um, first memoir, um, Dreams for My Father, um, a couple of months ago. And, and one of the, um, the, the funny things that he says about going back to Kenya was that I think it was the taxi drivers that, um, well, it was either the taxi drivers or, or people in the shopping markets that always try to overcharge him, um, and, <laughs> and, and 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 he, and he did not notice until uh, one of his um, one of his sisters basically said, "Oh, oh, they're they're trying to um, basically um, scam you or overcharge you because they they think you're basically white." 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm really fortunate in having had almost the opposite experience mm. um, that here in the UK, um, because I'm very pale skinned, mm. I pass for I I pass for white, mm. or I would do if it weren't for the fact that I bore everyone endlessly with my Parsi things. Yes. Um, it's, it's something to be proud of. You should be proud of it. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm exactly proud of it, but I think it's cool. I yeah, think it's it kind is, of it fortunate. Cool. It is cool. It is cool. It is cool. <laughs> I think it's fortunate and cool that I was born into this tiny minority group of <laughs> this weird religion and who, who are eaten by vultures after death and shit like yeah. that. Um, yeah. I enjoy it. It's yeah. kind of pleasurable to me. Um, but I, uh, so pe- people read me as British and, mm. um, and they, they treat me absolutely as such. Mm. But I was really surprised when I went to India that um, when I went, back to India, that although it felt very foreign to me in many ways, Mm -hmm. and um, I don't, you know, I don't look that Indian either, Mm. um, I was really instantly accepted as as Indian by most people. Mm. Um, And um, and as as Parsi specifically, and also just as Indian. Mm. Um, And Things were. I was constantly having experiences like. I mean, people when they saw me clearly thought this is a white woman. Mm. But then when I told them my father was Indian, they would say immediately, "I always knew you were Indian," <laughs> you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. It was. I wasn't expecting to have this um, to be Sorry. welcomed in that way, and I think that's not. Yeah. That's not the typical mixed race experience. So I've really had. Yeah. For me, being mixed has been an opportunity rather than a disadvantage. Yeah. What was it like um, living in Argentina? Um, because I know that, mm. um, of course, many, um, many South American countries, uh, many other South American countries are more mixed than Argentina is. Mm. So what was yes. it like living in Argentina? Yes. Um, so Buenos Aires in particular is very, uh, is very, very white European. Mm. Um, Buenos Aires is rather different from the rest of um, Argentina in a, um, in an, uh, um, is as far as skin color is concerned. Mm. And that's because the city, which incidentally houses one half of the population, mm. um, Argentina's population is around 45 million. Yeah. And I think 20, 25 million live in Buenos Aires, wow. in and around Buenos Aires. Wow. And Buenos Aires was, um, it, for a long time, Argentina and Buenos Aires were an, were absolute. Buenos Aires was an absolute backwater in Latin America. Mm. Despite the name of the country, there is no silver there. Mm. There are no minerals. Mm. Um, there wasn't even a very large indigenous population. Definitely not. Certainly not in the Pampas region where Buenos mm. Aires is, because there's nothing to eat there. Mm. Um, there are. They were lacking um, wild crops that could be used for food. Mm. They didn't have the animals, the beasts of burden. There was no advanced civilization there in the way that there was up in Mexico. Um, mm. And they didn't have the potatoes, the tomatoes, the llamas, mm. and all mm-hmm. the kinds of things that, that they have up in the Andes. Yeah. Um, of course, there is an Andean part of Argentina, but I'm just talking about the Buenos Aires region. Sure. And 
the Virenato um, was just, it was a, a tiny little kind of provincial backwater mm. for a long time. And then Argentine um, immigration took off hugely in the late 19th and early 20th century. Yeah. And there was a period in, in the, at the turn of the century uh, when more than half of the, more than half of the inhabitants of Argentina were non-Argentine born. Mm. And they were mostly, the, the largest group were Southern Italians. Yeah. That was about 50% of, of immigrants. Mm. By comparison, by the way, in New York at the height of their immigration, I think it was only a quarter. Mm. So Argentina was twice as sort of immigrant heavy as New York during the same period. Wow. And after Italians, the, the, the largest groups were Spanish and mm. Russian Jews who mm. were fleeing pogroms and, and um, um, oppression. Yeah. Buenos Aires has one of the lo- world's largest Jewish communities. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a, a very kind of white, quote unquote, ethnic group. Mm. Um, there was never much use for, there was, of course, there was slavery in Argentina, but there yeah. was never much use for slaves in Buenos Aires, mm. um, because cattle ranches don't require a lot of labor. Mm. One or two, one or two people can run a cattle ranch. You don't need people out in the fields planting and harvesting and stuff. Mm. And there, for a long time, there was, there was kind of a question around, the black people who clearly did come to Buenos Aires um, during the 19th century and what had become of them. But it seems that those who stayed in Buenos Aires, because they were, or most of the vast majority of them were men who mm. had come sing solo and they married local women mm. and their descendants look white. Mm. So the same phenomenon that David Olusaga was talking about. Mm. Outside of Argentina, in the rest of the country, there's a much higher proportion of people who have indigenous uh, South American um, ancestry, hmm. um, who are mestizo, who have some indigenous South American ancestry. Like, like, like Diego Maradona. Yeah, exactly. And then there's also, I would say that there's a tiny population of young African men in the hmm. city. Mm. Or maybe there are some women as well, but I've only ever seen men. And they're all these very tall, kind of, they look Somali to me, just mm. because they're very tall, slender. Mm. And they they all sell watches and jewelry out of briefcases. <laughs> <laughs> so it's clearly... Yeah, there's, that, that definitely there's, Somali there. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's clearly, you know, a... a a an, a little cottage industry mm. um, for those people, and that's where they mm. have fit in. Then the other large immigrant group are Chinese mm. who run supermarkets, mm. little mini supermarkets or corner stores, which the Argentines, who are not very politically correct, refer to as El Chino, the Chinese. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's their their usual term for a convenience store, just as. We used to call convenience stores the packy store, extremely yeah. Yeah. Uh, politically incorrect. I mean, yeah. that's not what I would say nowadays. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but 
And they, they call those stores the Chino. So there is a Chinese, Chinese, um, Argentine population and also a, um, there's also a Japanese neighborhood. Mm. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the reasons why I find Argentina, um, sorry to interrupt you. One of the reasons why I find it so fascinating is that, um, obviously, as you said, um, the majority of immigrants um, came from Italy, but the language they speak now is Spanish. Mm, so so yeah. Argentina, in a funny way, is just is a country of Spanish-speaking Italians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we always call them degenerate Italians. Okay. You know, whilst you're being politically incorrect, you might as well go all the way. Um, <laughs> so I think also in Argentina, one of the differences in attitudes towards race in in Latin America is that Mm. because so many people have mixed heritage Mm. in Argentina, mostly mixed um, with indigenous, but in Brazil also many people have mixed African and European and indigenous heritage. Um, there, There isn't really quite such a kind of there isn't really quite such a hard and fast boundaries and contrasts. Yeah. yeah. I have noticed colorism, like people being prejudiced against others for having darker skin. Yeah, I think that's um, true in Brazil, definitely. Yeah. Well, in India too. Yeah, definitely. Um, in India. That's often also an intra-racial phenomenon. Mm. Um, but I think that this kind of division, these people are white, those people are, are black, is a bit harder i find it a bit harder to to sustain yeah um because it's just a kind of wash of people who have like a variety of different kind of combinations of of things in their ancestry and Hmm. and may not even necessarily um know so yeah it's a bit different and i think that there's also when i've encountered the main racism that I've sort of overheard, mostly overheard in cafes and things like that, is people complaining about recent immigrants from the slightly poorer countries around the southern cone, mm. um, like Peru, Bolivia, um, Paraguay. Mm. So um, who are a very oppressed group within Buenos Aires. They're mm. all on these really... Uh, short term, very short term visas, mm. often just one month visas, and once a month they have to go and queue all day in person to try to get their visa renewed. Mm. It's extremely precarious lifestyle, and often they don't have um, medical insurance, and they're in very low wage jobs. And there is quite a lot of, I have noticed quite a lot of kind of snobby people. Um, being quite racist about about that group, yeah. So it's very different, you know. It's and, a very and, different. And, and do they tend to be more? Um, they come from like um, indigenous backgrounds. Is that? Um, yes, I think that. Well, to be honest, when I was in Bolivia, everybody looked as though they had it. Everybody was brown skinned and looked at, as though they had at least some um, indigenous ancestry. Mm. Just judging by appearance alone, mm. um, and one of one of my friends who has Bolivian, who has Bolivian answer, who is Argentine, but his parents came from Bolivia, went to India um, 
And he became a very popular backing dancer in Bollywood films. <laughs> and he was always put into a turban and cast as a Sikh because they all thought he looked um, very Sikh. Wow. Yeah. Yes. So um, Thomas, Thomas Jackson Williams said something similar, didn't he, about going to like um, Arab countries and, and so forth and people. Yes. They think he looked Arab. So yes. I, I also thought he looked Arab. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he made this wonderful point that if you say that your race is dependent on how other people see you, mm. um, which is something that a lot of critical race theorists say, that it's, it's um, you know, you don't have control over how other people view you, and therefore you are racialized and categorized whether you want to be or not. Mm. And um, Thomas always points out that in that and 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 that in some sense is who you truly are mm. because you can't separate your true self from how you're seen by society mm. and thomas always points out that if that's true then he is arab because everybody sees him as arab yeah um, just thinking about the way in which because i know that um in, in argentina is is there a sort of a persistence of italian culture in, mm. in, in Buenos Aires. Is, is that the yes. case? Yes. Sadly, there is not a, well, there is this kind of just, I can't be rude enough about Argentine food. Okay. <laughs> I think it's impossible to underestimate, uh, to, to underestimate how terrible it is. Wow, really? Um, yes, it's awful. Apart in, from... In, in what way? Why, why, is it, why is it so bad? <laughs> <laughs> God, I, I apologize to listeners that we've got onto this complete digression, but never mind. Yeah, it's, it's I really hope interesting it's interesting. There's, there's, there's a reason. What, there's, seriously, there's a reason why I'm asking because yeah, I'm going to say sure. something after. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so the only two good um, culinary items in um, in Argentina are well, Argentina is like the mirror image of India in culinary terms. The only two things you can't find in India. Um, are the only two good culinary items in Buenos Aires, which is the beef mm -hmm. is fantastic, and um, and the wine. Okay. Indian wine is generally really dreadful. <laughs> you have to be pretty desperate to get drunk on Indian wine. I have been desperate a few times, so <laughs> I'm not going to turn my nose up at it. It's alcohol, yeah. you know. But yeah. um, but the rest of the food is generally this kind of in Buenos Aires, certainly, um, this kind of really, really bad version of Italian food. Okay. So a lot of pasta and pizza and gnocchis and um, things of that kind, and a lot of and a lot of coffee shops and coffee culture. Hmm. But most of it, in most kind of places, and certainly in the more kind of down homey working class places. Hmm. Um, is just a quality that I think would make any Italian have a conniption fit. <laughs> um, you know, I think if an Italian ate the, that pizza, um, I I don't know. I think um, <laughs> somebody would die. There would be homicide. Um, Maybe that's why Maradona loved Naples so much. <laughs> quite possibly. Um, but yes, I think there is a kind of Italian feel to the culture. Mm. A lot of people have Italian roots, mm. um, Italian surnames. There are many Italian loan words in Argentine Spanish mm. 
the accent also in Argentine Spanish is more, I think it's a very beautiful um, uh, Spanish accent. Mm. It's got a more lilting um, quality yeah. than mainland Spanish. Mm. And did you do that thing with the, the fingers? The, the there's thing, a lot the of gesticulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and let's say there's not, there isn't a very pronounced culture of scrupulous punctuality. Mm. And reliability. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that thing too. What, 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 what kinds of um, loan words, um, Italian loan words, is used in Argentina? Uh, so, for example, um, leg is gamba. Okay. And um, work, which would, and it would be pierna in normal Spanish. Mm. Um, work, which would be trabajo in normal mm. Spanish, is laburo mm. in Argentine Spanish. Uh, stuff like that. Okay, yeah, that that's that's very interesting. Um, the the reason why I, I ask this question is um because I think one of the interesting things about um Brazil is that in some um in some African communities even today in Brazil they they, they still um have very strong Yoruba um Yoruba cultural expressions like e- even today in Brazil in some parts of northeastern Brazil. I know that um, there are some communities that still worship the um, the traditional religions that are found in um, in the southwest of Nigeria, the traditional Yoruba religions. Mm. Um, and I think w- one of the interesting things um, about um, that many people might not know is that um, during the 19th century and and also in the early 20th century, m- many um, many Brazilians. Or, or many Brazilian ex-slaves actually moved back to Africa. Um, so you had many, many um, people, many Brazilian slaves who could trace their ancestry back to Nigeria, actually moving back. Mm. Um, and um, are, are you familiar with the with the um, British novelist Bernadine Evaristo? No, I'm not. Um, she she recently um, wrote a, a book called Girl, Woman, Other, um, which which won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago. And, and the interesting thing about um, Everisto is that her dad um, is from Nigeria, but specifically um, is from, uh, he can trace his ancestry um, back to um, Brazilian um, ex-slaves that actually moved back to Nigeria. Um, so Everisto sounds um, sort of Portuguese, doesn't it? Mm, yes. Yeah. And, and that's that's the reason why. It's because even though her dad is um, Nigerian. His family has roots in um, in Brazil as well. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, can I ask about your your own parents? Sure. So, your parents um, were your parents born in Nigeria? Um, yeah, yeah, they were. And they came, when did they come to Britain? Um, so it's it's <laughs> it's it's kind of complicated <laughs> because. Um, so my actually my dad um uh, moved to Britain um uh, my my dad was born in 1954 and he and he moved to Britain in 1974 and he actually stayed in Britain for 10 years um studying and working um and then he moved back to Nigeria in 1984 uh met my mom um a couple of years later um they got married um, and they had um, four, four kids, including me. Um, I'm the youngest in the family. 
Um, and, and so, and, and so we, we, um, before we came, um, before we um, settled permanently um, in Britain, um, which was in 2005, um, we had visited Britain a couple of times. So we, um, we, we, the first time I ever came to Britain was in um, 2002 um, when I was six. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, I, then I came, and, and it was for um, the summer holiday. And then I came in 2003 during the summer again, and 2004 during the summer again. And then in 2005, we, we, we decided to settle permanently in Britain. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's, been, um, that's been my experience. Um, I, I think um, w- one of the, um, the fascinating things about, um, that I find fascinating about, about my parents is that when my um, dad first, um, first spoke to my mother, he spoke to her in English, um, which, which is fascinating to me because whenever they talk to each other now, they exclusively talk to each other in Yoruba, which, mm-hmm. is, the, which is both of them's native language. But my dad had to speak to my mom in English because he wasn't sure which ethnic um, group she came from. So, so in English um, in, in current Nigeria serves as a sort of necessary lingua franca because of the degree of of diversity within the country because um, apart from English um, there are over 400 different languages in the country uh, um, and, and I find that um, and when I was growing up as well um, my, my parents spoke to me in a mixture of, of Yoruba and English as well um, and it's funny even, even, even though my parents speak to each other exclusively in Yoruba. Even saying exclusively is sort of being a bit disingenuous because I think the English language is so um, has so influenced Yoruba that the, that may, may, there are many English loanwords um, that are used, um, and, and not just um, not just for like nouns uh, or like particular objects, but e- even sometimes particular phrases that are used or particular sentences because um j- just to go on a very um a, v- a very um short historical tangent here um yoruba as a language did not actually come about until until um an anglican nigerian bishop called samuel ajayi crowther um who was actually mentioned in um in david olusuga's book um yes yeah, he he decided um, in the nineteenth century that he wanted to translate um, the Bible, uh, the King James Bible, into um, into Yoruba. But at that time, Yoruba was not um, a single unified language; it was just made up of different different dialects. But so, in translating the the, um, the Bible into Yoruba um, from English into Yoruba, he had to basically standardize. Um, the Yoruba language uh, and sort of essentially unify all the different dialects into one single language that was um, mutually comprehensible um, to all the Yoruba people. So um, modern day Yoruba, even even the Yoruba spoken by my parents, um, grandparents and great grandparents is in itself a legacy of, a legacy of, of trying to translate a legacy of that translation um so it's 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 funny in that respect and i think it's also um it's it's also um 
sort sort of similar um, to um, when when Italian was essentially standardized um, in the nineteenth century um, by I, I believe um, a novelist called Alessandro Manzoni um, who wrote this who wrote this um, novel um, in the nineteenth century um, this epic novel um, and. And, and and at that time, um, Italian um, was essentially just made up of different different dialects. He standardized the language essentially um, when when he wrote that novel. That that became the sort of standard modern day um, modern day Italian, and and which I think was also influenced by the Tuscan um, the, the the dialects from from Tuscany um, and Florence. Um, so, so I, I, I find these weird um, so, sorts of. Uh, if I find this 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 um, way in which languages and and, and cultures um, intermingle, um, extremely fascinating, and it just goes to show, um, it goes to illustrate something which is um, one of the most important insights that people should should take is that culture is never pure. Mm. No, absolutely. Culture is, um, a, well, purity is, um, this is something that I've written a little bit about elsewhere, and I will actually link to this in the show notes in case people want to read it. But sure. purity is, if purifying is sterilizing, is killing. Mm. And life is dependent on being dirty, <laughs> being <laughs> important. Um, yes, yes. And culture is all, all is always kind of palimpsestic, yes. In that way, it's always accretional. Mm. Um, that's absolutely. I mean, so many of these things are are true of Indian culture, also. Mm. You know, uh, there was British imperialism in India um, caused an enormous amount of misery um, mm. and impoverished the country. And I agree mm. with Shashi Tharoor's basic basic premise that this was mm. what he calls an era of darkness, mm. um, the Raj for, for India. Mm. But on the other hand, it gave Indians a lingua franca, um, mm. English, mm. and always with, with um, colonization. And it, and it also gave English um, a lot of loan words as well, and a lot of yes. words, just words in general that we, we, we would not otherwise have. Basically. Yes, pajamas and bungalow yeah. and yeah. Uh, shampoo. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's um, you know when you have colonization, even if it's even if the main purpose of colonization is exploitation of local people and resources, mm. nevertheless, you always have uh, benefits, either intentional or unintentional. Yes. Side benefits, um, and of course there are. I do also have friends who are who are very pro-British and who take a quite rosy, to me, quite rosy spectacled view of the Raj, mm. and that's because um, the British gave their gave their grandparents an education or role, mm. etc. Whereas before they had been completely spurned by the local Hindu society because yeah. of their caste or because they were tribals, etc. Yeah, that, um, that's yeah, that's that's definitely also true in um in, in from a Nigerian perspective as well because 
um, in, in many in many communities and in many um, in many cultures in Nigeria, there were certain practices that um, would be um, rightly considered abhorrent from our perspective. So um, there was a lot of child sacrifice and a lot of um, twin um, infanticide. Um, twins were considered um, a sign of evil and, and devilry by, by many um, communities. And, and, and a lot of these practices were, um, were abolished. Not, they were abolished not by the colonial government, actually, but they were abolished by, um, by Christian, missionary, Christian missionaries and Christian missionary organizations. Um, and these missionary organizations also established um, a lot of schools. Um, so by, by about the 1940s, which was um, a, about a decade before Nigeria became in, independent, about 99% of all the schools in Nigeria were missionary schools. Um, so, and, and incidentally, many of the, uh, of the anti-colonial leaders were educated in these missionary schools as well. So you could, you could almost say that the anti-colonial movement in, in Nigeria and also many other um, African um, colonial countries were themselves a legacy of one part of of colonialism, um, i.e., i.e. the missionary, the missionary schools and the missionary mission, which which is that certain practices um, should be outlawed and and which emphasise the importance of human dignity and equality. Um, so they internalised these messages, but they um, also applied them um, back to the colonial government, saying that if if um, if twin infanticide, if child sacrifice, if polygamy, if, if all these practices are immoral, um, then the actual practice, then the actual institution of, of colonial subjugation and colonial racism, that's also immoral as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, using the master's tools to dismantle the master's heist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, Tom, I could, I could talk to you all day. Um, and. Um, you must come on the podcast again sometime. Definitely, definitely. Um, and um, you must also come, well, you don't have to, but um, I feel you must also come to dinner after after lockdowns are eased this summer. Definitely. Please do come over since we're both local East Londoners here. Actually, I'm, I'm from Southeast London. So, so there, was, there was a slight mistake yeah, of your part. Southeast, yeah. Southeast, mm. yeah, Southeast. Okay, I take it all back. Um, yeah, yeah. We can't be friends. No, I, I, do, I do consider myself a, um, a honorary East Londoner because I actually lived in East London for a while because I studied at Queen Mary, University of London. Oh, yes, I saw, yeah. yes. But definitely, I'll, I'll take up that offer, definitely. Mm, yes, maybe since you studied at Queen Mary, maybe you can just squeak in. <laughs> Yes, because just generally, <laughs> I'm very racist against people who live south of the river. Oh, um, that's terrible, Ayona. It's terrible. <laughs> I feel affronted by that. I, I'm going to be very cancelled now. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, is there anything that you've wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Um, and I will put links to everything we've mentioned and to your work sure. in the show notes. Sure. So don't worry uh, about that. I, I don't think so. I, I think I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's really, it's interesting how interconnected things are. Yeah. Um, and not in this kind of totalizing conspiratorial sense. 
everything is linked to this one big idea, mm. um, but in a much more haphazard, um, <laughs> much more sort of kaleidoscopic way. And, and mm. that's really what I've taken from this conversation today. Yeah. And, and also, I, I should say that um, one of the most important things for me um, at a very basic personal level is curiosity. Mm, um, mm. And I think that um, that's also one of the reasons why I'm I'm so resistant to this um, um, this particular narrative that's been um, promoted by many people is I think that it actually stunts curiosity and it stops us from being curious if 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 we just assume that everything is just mediated by race um, race defines and explains everything what what's the incentive then to be curious about um, the different cultures within races. Mm, mm, yeah, good point. Thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Thank you. And have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well. Stay happy and have a wonderful week.